The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Tonight, uh, we're going to be talking about the extent of the atonement. We just got into uh, the uh, topic a little bit two weeks ago um, when I forgot. And I didn't forget. I knew that the following week I was going to be in the hospital, but uh, we, t- we talked it through. We're fine, Christy and I. Everything's all right. So we worked on it. Um, but uh, yeah, t- that was two weeks ago. We began to look at this topic of the extent of the atonement. Now... Um, We've been discussing the atonement. The atonement is the work that Jesus Christ did to earn our salvation. Uh, we shouldn't we shouldn't shrink back from the phrase "earn salvation." We're not saying we did anything to earn it. Jesus did it. Uh, there is merit to His work. There's merit to His life. We are saved on the basis of the value of that work on our behalf, and so He earned our salvation. We did not earn it, but He did. The atonement is everything that uh, He did to uh, restore us to God. Uh, now we're getting into uh, an area that has been the subject of much debate in the Christian church and Christian history. There's been a lot of dispute over it, a lot of dis- disagreement, um, and it's, be, it's been somewhat of a battleground, and by that we're talking about the doctrine of the extent of the atonement. Uh, specifically, for whom did Christ die? Now, on your outline on page two, we talked uh, two weeks ago about some hymns uh, that talk about whosoever will, let him come, etc. Those are okay, um, but better are two that I've found uh, since then, and that's why I wanted you to have tonight's uh, handout. Uh, if you had the one from two weeks ago, I, I applaud you. I appreciate you saving the church paper, but I uh, added a few new things. Um, for example, uh, we, we talked about whosoever will, uh, whoever, whosoever mean, meaneth me, etc. Um, that is connected to this issue of the extent of the atonement only by uh, inference. The idea is that you really can't make a, uh, an appeal of the gospel widely to everybody on the face of the earth if you don't believe that Jesus died for everybody in the face of the earth. So the, the, the two of them go together. Um, for whom did Jesus die? They say, well, if he didn't die for everybody, then how can we evangelize everybody? How can we make a genuine appeal of the gospel to everybody? Um, but that's a little bit connected to it, but not right down the center. I found two other hymns or songs that I think talk a little bit more directly about the issue of for whom did Jesus die. One of them is a Michael Card song called Come to the Table. It's a communion song, and this is the refrain. It says, Come to the table and taste of the glory and savor the sorrow. He's dying tomorrow. The hand that is breaking the bread soon will be broken. And here at the table sit those who have loved you. One is a traitor and one will deny. And he's lived his life for them all and for all be crucified. Now, what's interesting there is who is he including in the word all, all right? Look at, look at what the lyrics say. What is, what is he saying? He's, he's setting the scene of the Last Supper, right? And who's, who's there at the Last Supper? Well, those that have loved him and go ahead. Right, those who have loved him. And what else does it say? Judas Iscariot. Now, there's an interesting case. Now, my question is, in what sense did Jesus die for Judas? That's really the question here. You see what I'm saying? In what sense did he die for him? Uh, because I believe he's like the only person that we know by name that is lost. Jesus called him the son of perdition. Uh, he is the son of lostness. He went to go where he uh, belonged, it said, after he committed suicide. That's what Peter said. 
Uh, he's the only person that we know in the Bible, uh, Jesus makes the statement, uh, that none has been lost except the one doomed to destruction. That's what he calls it in John 17. So the question that's in front of us tonight is, in what sense did Jesus die for Judas? In what sense? And if he died for him, then why is he in hell? And that's the question that we have to ask uh, more broadly, not just about Judas, but uh, for anyone. Another one is um, on page three, and this is the hymn by Charles Wesley, Arise, My Soul, Arise. Now, the, West, uh, the Wesleys were Arminian in their theology, and we'll talk about more about that in a minute. Um, but uh, he wrote this hymn, Arise, My Soul, Arise. It'll be found in many Baptist hymnals, many hymnals. You probably sung it yourself. Uh, this is how it goes. Arise, my soul, arise, shake off thy guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice in my behalf appears. Before the throne, my surety stands. Before the throne, my surety stands. His name is, my, sorry, my name is written on his hands. Uh, then second verse. He lives, he ever lives above for me to intercede. His all redeeming love, uh, his precious blood to pre, to plead. And then it says this. His blood atoned for all our race. His blood atoned for all our race and sprinkles now the throne of grace. Third verse. Five bleeding wounds he bears uh, received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. Forgive him, oh forgive, they cry. Forgive him, oh forgive, they cry. Nor let that ransomed sinner die. Now that's that's very strong, isn't it? Uh, the second verse, it says, his blood atoned for all our, all our race. Now remember I said atoned comes from the words at one. It means to make two estranged parties to actually be at one. It talks about reconciliation. It talks about forgiveness. The, the wrath of God turned away. Uh, and for whom does Charles Wesley say that happened in this hymn? For the whole race, the whole human race. Doesn't that lead you to a question? Well, what question would that lead you to as you consider it? Why does anybody go to hell? You see what I'm saying? And that's the question that's in front of us as we, as we discuss this issue of the extent of the atonement. And so uh, these are various hymns. Uh, basically, the, uh, the idea on the uh, what we would call the more free will or Arminian side is that for an, a genuine offer of the gospel uh, to be made, Jesus had to die for the entire human race. Uh, Christ's blood must have paid for the sins of every person to whom the gospel is offered or it's not a genuine offer. Now, on the Reformed uh, point of view, as we talked about two weeks ago, uh, Reformed people say that if Christ's blood atoned for the sins of every single person on the face of the earth, then they are truly atoned for and no one will be in hell. Uh, uh, another name for that doctrine is universalism. Universalism, the doctrine that there is no one in hell, that everyone will be saved. Uh, if God sends any to hell uh, whose sins have already been paid for, then it seems that he is demanding a double payment. And that's what Augustus Toplady, this is the battle of the hymns tonight. All right, we're going to get out the hymns, roll them out, and see uh, who's going to win. But uh, Augustus Toplady wrote it this way. From whence this fear and unbelief has not the father put to grief his spotless son for me? And will the righteous judge of men condemn me for that load of sin which Lord was charged on thee? That's a big question. Is he going to condemn me for something he put on Jesus? That's a big question. Can I be condemned for something that Jesus carried, that he bore, that he bled for? Second verse. If thou my pardon hast secured and freely in my room endured the whole of wrath divine, payment God cannot twice demand. First from my bleeding surety's hand and then again from mine. Now, you see the issue there. It's, the, it's an issue of justice, isn't it? How can you make Jesus suffer for sins uh, and then make the same person suffer again? The, uh, in other words, it's a, it's a payment that's been paid twice. 
uh, once by Jesus and then once by the suffering soul in hell forever and ever. Not that that really pays for it because it really doesn't. We gave an illustration last week of the toll booth of a payment uh, being paid for the car following. And then uh, if the person accepts that payment, they are really under some kind of a legal obligation to let the second car pass through. If they don't, then they really have swindled the first car. Uh, that is uh, the idea. So there we, we stand. Uh, the idea is, can we make a genuine offer of the gospel to a mixed group, to a crowd of people, a thousand people, or one person for that matter, if we're not confident that Jesus died for the sins of every single solitary human being on the face of the earth? Can we really make a general and wide gospel appeal if we're not confident that Jesus died for everybody? But if Jesus died for every single solitary person on the face of the earth, then why does anybody go to hell? And that's the question. Now, let me take a break from the sheet here and let's talk about what's generally called the five points of Calvinism. I hardly ever bring these things up. Uh, I don't desire in myself to be waving a banner of Calvinism and all that. I am reformed in my theology. I, I'm not embarrassed about that. I love John Calvin as a theologian, as a teacher. I did my PhD on him. Probably I learned more from him uh, than any other teacher in history on methodology and how to handle the scriptures. Uh, he was a very faithful and systematic instructor. Expositional preaching was his forte. He also was constantly moving back and forth between the big picture of systematic theology with his work, the Institutes of the Christian Religion, and then the minute details of verse-by-verse exposition as he was writing commentary after commentary on every verse in the Bible. Now, he never finished it. He died before he could finish all that, but his work is astounding. And so he's moving back and forth between the forest and the trees, the forest and the trees, the details of every verse, and then the big picture of just a system of theology, and it's a beautiful thing to see. I don't agree with everything that he uh, taught, um, but uh, that's one thing I've learned in, in church history is that there's really nobody in church history with whose doctrine I totally 100% agree. Uh, that doesn't mean they're wrong. <laughs> It just means we're all sinners and we all fall short in some way, even doctrinally. So if doctrinal perfection is required to go to heaven, then nobody's going to go there. All of us have uh, areas that we fall short. But uh, at any rate, uh, sometime after Calvin died, uh, the precepts or the tenets of what we call reform theology were organized at the Synod of Dort in response to those that were rejecting um, the doctrine of the sovereignty of God and salvation. And they organized around five basic points. Those that were espousing free will went first and uh, laid out these five areas of uh, discussion and debate. Um, and then after that, the Synod of Dort came up with uh, five responses. And after that, those five responses from the Synod of Dort were organized in a little heading known as TULIP. Uh, this uh, acronym, T-U-L-I-P, um, helps people remember these so-called five points of Calvinism. The Arminians went first in organizing the five areas of discussion, uh, but since that time, most people uh, know more these five points of Calvinism. The T stands for total depravity, the idea that uh, we are sinners uh, to the core of our being and uh, that we cannot choose God. We've had decades to choose him and we never will. Unless God regenerates us and transforms us, we'll continue on in our sin. That's the doctrine of uh, total depravity, very much connected to uh, the idea of original sin, total depravity. You is unconditional election, uh, the idea that God chose before the foundation of the world uh, some to be saved. And he did it not on the basis of anything he saw, like it says in Romans 9, before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose and election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger. That's the doctrine of unconditional election. 
L is what we're at tonight is uh, the doctrine of limited atonement. The idea that Jesus died for a limited number of people and that being the elect. Uh, he died for the sins of the elect and they will truly be saved. I stands for irresistible grace. Uh, the idea that God's uh, grace cannot be resisted by the sinner. In the end, he's going to get who he wants. He has that kind of power and he will transform the human heart. And P is the perseverance of the saints, that they will, uh, uh, that it's basically the doctrine of once saved, always saved, uh, that if you are truly justified, if you are truly saved, you cannot lose your salvation, but you will persevere to the end and you will in the end be saved. That's the way the five points of Calvinism are usually described. I don't like the acronym because I think that there's some sloppiness in, the, in that uh, articulation. I prefer rather uh, this. Isn't that great? RISDEP, okay? <laughs> and uh, the problem with RISDEP is it's not a pretty flower and it's not therefore easily rememberable, all right, or, or memorizable. I mean, um, TULIP you can remember even if it is a little sloppy doctrinally. RISDEP is really hard to remember. So specialists like me can hold on to uh, acronym like RISDEP and know what each of those letters mean. But for the ordinary folks that are not spending a ton of time thinking about theology, RISDEP is really hard to hold on to. Okay? Uh, first of all, I wouldn't say total depravity. That implies that we can never do anything good, that there's nothing in us that's good, that all of our works are filthy and wretched and all that. Well, that really isn't true. The idea that we are as absolutely evil as we could possibly be just isn't biblical. Um, rather, I would go for radical depravity. In other words, that sin reaches to the root of who we truly are. Uh, there's no part of us that is not tainted by sin. There's no bastion or spark of goodness or area that's not in some way affected by sin. Uh, basically, sin hounds us everywhere we turn. Everything we try to do, it's right there. Um, I would not go with unconditional election, uh, but rather sovereign election. Uh, God knows why he makes his choices. He just doesn't tell us what they are. God's a very purposeful being. And so the idea of unconditional election really doesn't line up with the God that we know in the Bible. Rather, he has his own conditions and he doesn't tell us what they are. He does what he wills with what he's made. Uh, but he has his purposes. And so therefore, we go with sovereign election, that God chooses his elect in his own way and for his own purposes and his own glory. Now, here's where we get to, uh, I think, a key distinction. The problem with limited atonement the idea of limited atonement, is it makes it seem to shrink what Jesus achieved at the cross. Like it's somewhat L for less of an accomplishment. And uh, the problem is that it's really unfair to those that uh, believe in Reformed theology. Because frankly, uh, both sides in some way limit what Jesus achieved if anybody says that somebody ends up in hell. If we're not going to be universalists, which is unbiblical, then in some way Jesus' atoning work is limited. What we're trying to find out is how is it limited? How, how is it limited? And this is, this is the way it works. With the Arminian view, I think it works this way, that uh, Jesus atoned for the sins of uh, the entire human race, but he doesn't atone for all of their sins. For example, he doesn't atone for the sin of unbelief in the gospel. He leaves that to you. And the way you atone for that is by repenting and believing in the gospel. You see, that one he did not pay for. That's the way it works. And so there's a limit. Uh, for us, uh, we rather say that Jesus, we use the word D for definite, that Jesus knew exactly who he was dying for. He knew, he knew them by name. And we'll talk more about the verses that support this. Definite atonement. Now, I for irresistible grace bothers me. It gives me the picture that we're being dragged kicking and screaming into heaven. If we had our way, we would go to hell. Well, I think it's true at one level, but it just doesn't work that way. Salvation doesn't work that way. I know 
that I chose Christ. I know that I love Christ. I just believe he chose me and loved me first. That's what I'm saying. And so rather, instead of irresistible grace, I want to talk about effectual grace. That God's grace is effective. It produces an effect in us. And the effect that he wants is what he gets. And the final P is perseverance in both cases. But I'm going to shift from the perseverance of the saints to the perseverance of God with the saints. He never gives up on us. He who began a good work in us, he will carry it on to completion. And so there you have it. RISDEP, the five points of Calvinism. Okay? Now, as we zero in on this one, uh, the reason I'm going into this tonight is that many times you'll hear this terminology, I'm a four-point Calvinist. Which one do you think they leave out? Well, it's inevitably this one. I have never met anyone that chose this one but left any others out. Um, it's always this middle one. And the reason is that there are verses in the Bible that it seems in a plain reading teach that Jesus died for the whole world. And that's what we're going to go into tonight. Four-point Calvinists generally, as far as I know, and as I said, I've never experienced any person who identifies himself as a four-point Calvinist who embraces this and, and gets rid of one of the others. So it's almost always this idea of limited atonement or definite atonement. That's what we're talking about tonight, if we ever get to it. And we will. I mean, we're, we're getting to it. But I'm just setting the table, okay? That's this, this middle one of for whom did Christ die. Any questions about that before we go on? Okay? All right, so the idea is, for whom did Christ die? The consistency of the so-called the five points of Calvinism is that God has the elect in mind all the way through the five points. And what he is working in them, he works all the way through until they're saved. There's a consistency there. Um, that, that's the, that's the, uh, the issue with that. Let's go on, um, having set the, the, the table. Let's look uh, some more at uh, reformed and non-reformed objections. Page four, middle of page four. Answering the non-reformed objections concerning the offer of the gospel. First of all, what, again, what they're saying is the non-reformed folks are saying, Arminian, or tend, tend to be, let's say, or free willers, uh, tend to say this way. You can't make a genuine offer of the gospel if you don't know in your heart as an evangelist that Jesus died for everybody. Well, let's answer that. Uh, what Grudem says is this. First of all, we do not know who will respond to the free offer of the gospel because only God knows that. Secondly, as far as we are concerned, the gospel is to be proclaimed to every creature under heaven. Colossians 1.23, Mark 16.15. Those are our marching orders. We're not only to proclaim the gospel to those that we have a sense are elect before the foundation of the world. One thing I've noticed is that the elect do not have an E on their foreheads. I don't know who they are except that they tell me who they are by saying they believe in Jesus and by the, how they live. That's how I know who the elect are. And it is possible to know uh, who is chosen by God because it says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, for we know, brothers, loved by God, that he chose you because our gospel came to you not simply with words but also with the power, with, with power of the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. What is Paul saying? I watched how you responded to the gospel. I saw that you embraced it. I saw that you repented at great cost from your idolatry. I saw that you're walking with Christ. I accept you as elect, as chosen. Now, we know that Paul is not going to sit on the judgment seat. It's not going to be Paul ultimately that makes that decision. If I say, I think that so-and-so is elect, it doesn't make them elect or non-elect. My judgment in the matter is not ultimately determinative. Therefore, I don't worry about it. If somebody says to me that they're a Christian and their lifestyle seems to line up with that, I accept them as elect. I just know uh, that I ultimately cannot know one way or the other. Now, as we preach the gospel, that's even more true of people who are not Christians yet. I mean, would anyone have tabbed the Apostle Paul, the future Apostle Paul, as somebody who eventually was going to come to Christ on the road to Damascus? He isn't looking fair for heaven. 
He really is not looking like he's the person who's about to repent. And certainly even that morning as he's breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples, it doesn't look like he is going to repent that very day. Uh, but God had chosen him and God worked powerfully. So we don't know. And, and for us, we're just commanded to preach the gospel to everybody. Widely and uh, freely. Mark 16, 15. Uh, we also know that everyone who hears, repents, and believes the gospel will most certainly be saved. That's a promise of God. Jesus says, anyone who comes to me, I will never turn them away. So we know that anybody who hears the gospel and repents and believes they're going to be saved. God keeps his promises. The fact that God foreknew who would be saved does not inhibit the free offer of the gospel. For who will respond to it is hidden in the secret counsels of God. Greedom put it this way, that we do not know who will respond no more constitutes a reason for not offering the gospel to all than not knowing the extent of the harvest prevents the farmer from sowing in his fields. If he says, I don't know what percentage of these seeds are going to come up, it doesn't stop him from sowing the seeds, does it? He's going to go out there and he's going to do his work as a farmer and hope he gets as big a harvest as he possibly can. Uh, that's uh, just an analogy that Grudem uses. Finally, Reformed people argue that God's purpose and redemption, purpose and redemption are totally agreed upon by the Trinity and are most certainly going to be accomplished. Those whom God the Father planned to save are the same people for whom Christ died and they are the same people uh, to whom the Holy Spirit will certainly apply the benefits of Christ's atoning work by awakening uh, their faith. What God the Father proposed, God the Son and God the Holy Spirit agreed to and surely carried out. Now, don't miss the significance of this. My first, my systematic theology professor was Roger Nicole. He was reformed in his theology, um, believed in the five points of Calvinism. Uh, he was describing these things. I had never heard them before. I was trying to understand. And he told me that, that of all the arguments for definite atonement, this one was the strongest. That is the unity of purpose within the Trinity. The unity of purpose within the Trinity. Uh, he was Swiss. He had a heavy French accent. I'm not going to imitate him, although it's great sport at Gordon Conwell. He used to imitate Roger Nicole and see who could do the best Swiss-French accent. I'm not going to do that tonight, but he used to say it like this. He said, the Father elects some, the Spirit regenerates some, but the Son dies for all. What is it? Two out of, two, two out of three? Two against one, we win. Can you imagine the Father and the Spirit saying, we win? Because we outvoted you. We can't imagine that within the Trinity. There's always a unity of purpose between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Now, for us, we have a hard time imagining that. Uh, we have disagreements. Uh, even spouses that love each other, even within a family or within the church, we can imagine a disagreement of purpose. We can't imagine that within the person of God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit are totally in concert all the time with one another. Uh, that is the, what Dr. Nicole said was the strongest argument for the idea that Jesus died for the elect. Um, Top of page five. Now, let's uh, talk about certain passages that are used to support the reform view and then passages that are used to uh, support the other view. First of all, there are passages that speak of Christ dying for his people. In uh, Matthew 121, it says, speaking of Mary, uh, she will give birth to a son and you were to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Uh, what's significant about that? Well, the phrase in this case, what's significant is the phrase his people. There's a, a focus here. He came to save his people. Now, who, who are his people? One could argue it's Jews. If this were the only verse we had, then that would be pretty weak. But there's a focus on his people. Who are they? Uh, Jesus talked about who his people were, especially in John chapter 10. It says in John 10, uh, verse 2, the man who enters by the gate is the shepherd of his sheep. The watchman opens the gate for him and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. 
I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And then in verse 14 of that same chapter, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Do you see that? The issue is there's a relationship between the shepherd and the sheep. He knows who they are. He calls them by name. They're not an amorphous group of people that he has no idea who they might be. He knows them personally and he knows them by name. And he says, I call them. They follow me. They're not going to follow another. They know my voice and they follow me. And I lay down my life for them. That's a very strong verse on the issue of definite atonement, that Jesus died definitely for uh, those who are his sheep. In verse 16, he says, I have other sheep that are not of the sheep pen. I must bring them also, and they too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. And so there it is. There's a sense of that focus that Jesus died for his sheep. I lay down my life for the sheep. And then in Romans 28 and following, it says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Uh, What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? He who, uh, sorry, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus who died, more than that was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Now, throughout that passage, there's a focus on certain people. Uh, those who, those who, those who. There's a focus on them. The scripture calls them in another place, the elect. They are the group of people that God is working uh, all things out for. Paul goes out of his way to stress who he is talking about in these verses. The elect, chosen by God, predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. They are constantly in view in these magnificent verses. And therefore, it is for them that he died, just as it is for them that he intercedes. Uh, Also, in Ephesians 5, uh, 25. By the way, a lot of times people are troubled over the word all. It's really hard to do a study on the word all. In other words, Jesus died for all, etc. The word all... Uh, very uh, frequently does not mean every single solitary human being on the face of the earth any more than it means every single solitary thing in God's universe. For example, if you come into a, uh, you're, you have an event set, scheduled at your home and you come in and say, is everybody here? Uh, you don't mean are all 6.3 billion people here. You couldn't feed them. You wouldn't have anywhere to put them. Uh, you meant there's a group that you have in mind. Uh, is all of that group there? And we see a good example of that right in the verses I read. Um, uh, in verse uh, 32, uh, Romans 8, 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, right? You say, well, that's got to be the entire human race, right? Well, it does say us all, so there's a limiting there, but maybe us means the entire human race. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Well, the word all is in there twice. Are you expecting to get all things from God? Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes Benz, right? <laughs> Have you ever heard that song? Are you expecting that from God? Would you want all Mercedes Benzes? See, you don't want all things, do you? Like that, like Stephen Wright said, where would you put them? You know, if you had every single Mercedes Benz, you wouldn't have anywhere to go. And that's just one brand of car. How about all things? You really want all things? Is that what the word all means? Well, you automatically in your mind shifted on the second part. Say all those things God intends to give us, right? All of those things that are good for us. All of those things that are, are, will be a blessing. All the things he has in mind. That's what the word all. And your mind just automatically does that. 
And uh, so I, I just think that's an important uh, point to make. But God has some blessings in mind and he's going to give you all of those blessings in Christ. Just like he has people in mind and he's going to bless them. All right, Ephesians 5, it says that uh, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, etc. Uh, all right, uh, page 6. So that uh, the first category of verses are those that seem to limit those for whom Christ is doing his saving work. The second is Christ's references to those whom the Father had given him. This is uh, almost exclusively in John's Gospel. Uh, I think it is exclusively, at least on this sheet. It says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. So there's this idea of those that the Father has given. What's interesting, if you look at verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. The implication is that the giving happens before the coming. The Father gave and then they come. Now, we tend to think the other way around. They come and then Jesus says, oh, then the Father must have given. That's not what the verse says. Rather, it's that the Father gave and then they come. And I believe that the Father gave before the foundation of the world. And they come at a certain specific date. I know when it was for me, it was in October of 82. That's when I came to Christ. But I believe I had been given to Jesus before the foundation of the world. And so all that the Father gives me will come to me. And those who come to me, I will never drive away. For I've come down from uh, heaven not to do my own will, but do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me. I shall lose none of them, but raise them up at the last day. And that is vital to me. You know, people say, why do we go through this? You know, it's so controversial. It's so difficult. It jars my thinking. It bothers me. Please don't drag my mind into unpleasant things, all right? I'd rather just kind of think loosely about these things and not work it out. But the fact of the matter is, the more you think about these things, the greater your certainty and assurance in Christ goes up. Also, it's very humbling because you start to realize God isn't looking to you in the matter of your salvation ultimately. And to me, that is greatly comforting. It is greatly encouraging to know that I don't need to crank it out every day or else God's going to throw me out but rather he is at work in me and he's going to keep working and he's going to keep sustaining until in the end I'm saved. So he says, I will lose none of all that he's given me, but I will raise them up at the last day. And then uh, in John 10, 25 and following, it says, uh, Jesus answered, I did tell you. Um, well, it's right in the middle of a quote. He's, he's talking to his, his Jewish opponents there and they're saying, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, uh, tell us plainly. It's an amazing thing, really. You wonder how many different ways Jesus could have told them. And Jesus here, in effect, says that very same thing. He says, I did tell you. I did tell you, but you do not believe. The miracles I do in my Father's name speak for me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. Notice Jesus' logic in his order. It's not you're not my sheep because you don't believe. If you would just believe, then you could be my sheep. He doesn't say it that way. He says, the reason you don't believe is that you're not my sheep. That's what he's getting at. And then he says, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one can snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. Those are some of the most comforting and encouraging verses of total assurance you will ever find in the Bible. I remember um, 
a staff worker on Campus Crusade for Christ, illustrated John 10 to me. And he, he put something, a coin, I think, in his hand. And, and he said, this is, Jesus said, no one can snatch them out of my hand. And then he put uh, his other hand around it. No one can snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. Challenged me to take the quarter out of his hand. Well, it's very hard to do. I mean, even that he was bigger and stronger than me anyway. I mean, I'm not really known for bodybuilding and all that kind of thing. It's not a strength of mine. But I could not have pried those fingers up. And like Jesus says, if you then as parents, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give good gifts to those who ask him? Well, if this a weak human being can put something in his hand so strongly that nobody can snatch it out, how much more the eternal God of the universe can keep his sheep safe? That's the P in tulip. That's the perseverance, the protection of God as he works and protects. But again, there's this focus on the sheep. He says, you're not my sheep or else I would protect you. I'd keep you safe. Nobody could snatch you, but you're not my sheep. That's why you don't believe. And then he says in John 17, 1 and 2, after Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the time has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify me. Now look at verse 2. For you granted him authority over all people, all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. That's a very interesting verse, isn't it? Jesus has sovereign power over the nations. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He got that power from God Almighty. God Almighty had it to give. He gave it to the Son. And Jesus says, this is the purpose of the power. The reason you gave me authority is that I might give eternal life. But then he delimits who he's giving it to. He says in verse 2, that uh, you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. It's that same phrase again in John's gospel. To his sheep he may give eternal life. And then he says later in his high priestly prayer, very interesting, in John 17, 9, he says, I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. And then again in verse 20, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. Now, it's very interesting there. That's Jesus' high priestly prayer. A simple question. If Jesus will not pray for the world, but only for those whom the Father has given him out of the world, then why would he die for the world? It's a smaller thing to pray for them than it is to die on the cross for them. Jesus says, I am not praying for them, but I'm praying for those you have given me out of the world. They are yours, you gave them to me. Would he not rather die only for those whom the Father had given uh, him out of the world? And I think he does. This is especially potent in that Jesus never prays for anything outside of the Father's will. I've talked about this before. We know that if we ask anything according to God's will, he hears us, right? If you ask for anything according to the will of God, you get it, right? First John. Jesus never asks for anything outside of the Father's will, ever. You understand that? He never prays for anything outside of the Father's will. Therefore, what percentage of the things Jesus asks for does he get? 100%. And therefore, he does not pray for the world in, in terms of this matter of salvation. He doesn't pray for them in terms that they might be saved. For then they would be saved, friends. They would be saved because he gets everything he asks for, but he doesn't pray for that. But he rather prays for those whom the Father had given him out of the world, that they would be protected and kept safe, that they would be in heaven in the end. And he says in John 17, 24, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you love me before the creation of the world. What does he want? What is he praying for? What is all of the drive of Jesus' ministry? It is that in John 17, 24, that you might be with him where he is, that you might see his glory, that you might spend eternity with him, that you might go to heaven. John 17, 24. That's the whole focus of his ministry. 
but that doesn't happen for a huge number of people who are going to be going to hell. And so therefore, you have to think, well, Jesus, did he misfire? Did he intend a wider audience? What is going on? Why are so many lost? Frankly, I think that's the question that Romans 9 through 11 is seeking to answer. We'll come on Sunday, we'll talk about it. I get a great week. This is a great week of teaching for me. I get to teach on definite atonement today and God gave them a spirit of stupor on Sunday. Come and listen as I try to explain that passage, that God gave them eyes that do not see. God gave them ears that do not hear. Why would he do that? Well, I, I know, but uh, I'll come on Sunday. I'm not saying I ultimately know, but I'm just saying if I don't figure, figure it out yet, I shouldn't preach on it, right? I should preach a topical sermon on something else. But on Sunday, we're going to preach on Romans 11, 7 through 10. It's challenging teaching. But here we have the sovereignty of God. And ultimately, what is the end? John 17, 24. That is what he is pushing toward. That is what he wants to do. He wants you to be with him in heaven. He wants you to see his glory. That's his intention and that's what he will achieve. And so these passages in John speak again and again of those whom the Father had given to Christ. For them he came, for them he lived, for them he prayed, for them he died, for them he will return. They are his sheep who hear his voice, who follow him, who obey his word and who will someday see his glory. His ministry to them is purposeful and it is perfectly effective. But for the world, he does none of these things or they would have been saved. So when you've gotten like six hours of sleep in the last three days, you should just read what you wrote when you hadn't gotten that, all right? Uh, as I'm looking after our, our little baby, my, my head is not clear and I'm teaching on tough things. So just read this. There's a tremendous focus in Jesus's ministry, a tremendous focus on his sheep. And for them, he is effective and powerful. That's the way of thinking concerning definite atonement. Uh, thirdly, there are passages that speak of a transaction between the Father and the Son. It says in Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his own love for, in, for us in this. While we are still sinners, Christ died for us. And also in Romans 5.10, it says, For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his Son, how much more, having been reconciled, uh, shall we be saved through his life? So what that means is the people for whom Christ died will therefore be reconciled to the Father when his saving work is effectively applied by the Holy Spirit. Christ died for no one who will not be saved or reconciled. In other words, there's an effectiveness to what he's doing. He is seeking to produce reconciliation. He's seeking to produce peace between God the Father and, and the sinner. And he offers his blood in order to achieve that. The question we have to ask is why would that be ineffective? Why would he do that and then in the end they're not reconciled? And then finally, there are passages... Uh, would speak of the blessings uh, that Christ gained uh, by his death, specifically for his people. Grudem puts it this way, further support for the reform view is found in the consideration that all the blessings of salvation, including uh, faith, repentance, and all the works of the Holy Spirit in applying redemption were also secured by Christ's redemptive work, specifically for his people. In other words, Jesus, when he died on the cross, he bought the whole package for you. He bought repentance for you. He bought faith for you. He bought everything for you. He gave it to you as a gift. And so therefore, in many places, repentance is portrayed as a gift from God. Faith is portrayed as a gift from God. Jesus paid for that. And so in the, in the hymn, since we're talking about hymns tonight, Come Ye Sinners, Poor and Needy, it says, uh, True belief and true repentance, every grace that brings you nigh. True belief and true repentance are graces from God that brings you close to him. Jesus paid for those. He accomplished them. He bought them. 
That is so huge. It's so important to understand that. Like it says in Ephesians 1, 3 through 8, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he had freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of god's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding in other words it's a package deal all of it comes together the whole thing bought with the blood of jesus christ all of it comes together now let's talk about terminology reformed uh, view usually refers to the idea of limited atonement i've already talked about this poor title implying implying some kind of limitation only by reformed people mean people that we are We're so mean-spirited, we want to limit what Jesus did on the cross. Well, that is not it. And frankly, if you're ever in a discussion on this and you'd like to defend this view, don't choose a a term that puts you at a disadvantage. Uh, Limited makes it seem like we're, you know, we have a limited atonement, but we have a wide open atonement, an infinite atonement. Well, unless they're universalists, they don't have an infinite atonement. They also have a limited atonement. Uh, When I was um, taking systematic theology with Dr. Nicole, uh, we had to read 2,000 pages uh, that semester. That was part of the assignment. 2,000 pages. All right, that's a lot. But he gave us double page credit, double page credit for a book by B.B. Warfield on the inspiration authority of the scripture. So for every page you read of B.B. Warfield on inspiration authority of scripture, you got double. That was attractive to me. I liked the efficiency of it. But then I noticed on the syllabus that you got triple credit for a little book by John Owen called The Death of Death and the Death of Christ. And I thought, wow, what a whammy. All I have to do is read 250 pages of this death of death and death of Christ, and I'll get 750 pages of credit. Well, it was absolutely no bargain. It was the hardest book I have ever read in my life. Never in all my life have I had such a hard time understanding every paragraph. It got so bad that I had to write my own translation of this guy. It was written originally in English, of all things. And I had to write my own translation of every paragraph. But why I did it was, the more I went on, I started to realize how penetrating was his way of thinking and his way of handling every scripture. It was incredible. Just poorly written. Very difficult to read. And so the triple credit in the end burned me. I was attracted. But you see, Dr. Nicole was a brilliant uh, professor. And he said, I want you to read it. Basically, long story short, is the book on the issue of death and atonement. As someone once said, nobody has thought of or will ever will think about any arguments for or against the doctrine of definite atonement that Owen does not deal with exhaustively. As someone once said, Owen has exhausted both the subject and his readers. Okay, that's what he does. There's just nothing left by the time he gets done. Everything has been covered. And uh, one of the things Owen talks about is uh, the sins uh, that, Jesus, uh, that Jesus died for. Either Jesus died for all of the sins of all people. Let me write this down. I'm definitely going to mess this up. So let's write this down. Either Jesus died for all the sins of all people. Or he died for all the sins of some people. Or he died for some sins of all people. 
Other cases are not worth discussing, like Jesus died for no sins of all people. We wouldn't have a gospel, right? These are the three that matter. What would you call that first one? If Jesus died for all of the sins of all people? Oh, it's universalism. Because then they are atoned for. They are paid for. They're completely gone. All sins of some people is my view. That Jesus died for all of my sins. What Owen says is that the Arminian, the other view, is actually this one. That Jesus dies for some of the sins of all people. He leaves out unbelief. He leaves out unrepentance. He doesn't die for that. And, you know, you look at that and you say, okay, well, what is, this, what is the case in there? What, what is the issue here? Here, this leads to universalism. What does this lead to? If Jesus dies for some of the sins of all people, what does that lead to? Leads to unrighteousness in God in that he would forgive, forgive it, etc. And Owen said this, what sin doesn't he die for? He doesn't die, die for unrepentance and lack of faith in the gospel. That's something you must do. You must repent. You must believe. That's your work. He didn't die for that. That's up to you. But the question that Owen then asks is, is it a sin or not to not believe in the gospel? Is it a sin to not believe in the gospel? Tell me. Is it a sin to not repent when the evangelist comes and says, repent and believe the good news? Is it a sin to resist that call? Is it a sin or not? Yes, it is. But Jesus didn't die for it, so it fits in the third category. You see that? My question is, how do you atone for a sin Jesus didn't die for? How do you do that? Say again. Yeah, you basically go to hell. You, you accept the responsibility, as Jerry said. But you, you basically go to, get, go to hell. What can wash away my sins, friends? Answer from the hymns. We're doing hymns tonight. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And if Jesus didn't die for unbelief in the gospel, then there is no forgiveness available for it. That's a whole different question. All right, that is a different question. My take on the unpardonable sin is it's directly tied to the miraculous ministry that Jesus was doing in which he had done everything that God the Father was going to show concerning the Son that Jesus was God. He had done all these miracles. They look at the evidence, the miracles, and they conclude exactly the opposite direction that Jesus is actually Beelzebub. He's he's actually uh, a demon or a devil. I think it's tied to Jesus' miraculous ministry. uh, ministry, but we can talk about that, you know, another time. I believe so. I believe so. Yeah. And there, and frankly, there are other other so-called unpardonable sins. Isaiah said, uh, "The Lord Almighty called you on that day to weep and to wail, to put on sackcloth and tear out your hair." But instead, there's feasting and revelry slaughtering of sheep and eating of cattle, drinking of meat, uh, drinking of wine and all that. You had a big party. I tell you to this, to your dying day, this sin will not be atoned for. It's in Isaiah 21. So basically, go ahead. I just have something unsettled in John 6, um, 28 and 29. It's the crowd after he's just fed them. They said to him, what must must we do to be doing the works of God or the duty uh, that God requires? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God to believe in him whom he has sent. Mm -hmm. And I've discussed with people before who are arguing that belief is a, a work that you do and it's something that is necessary and it is something that's kind of on you, so to speak. Mm-hmm. But I've never been able to let it rest, so to mm-hmm. speak, defend it well enough. Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, we're, we're really probing into the depth. I mean, we're not, I don't know that we're going to finish this tonight. The, the final thing I, I want to say about this, um, and I'll say it again as we have time perhaps next week, is this issue isn't ultimately determinative. 
there are people that discuss this back and forth and both of them love Jesus. Both of them are committed to evangelism and to missions and you don't have to agree on this. I think it's worth discussing to a point. But I'm not going to go on and on and talk about this because I don't think it's ultimately... I have great fellowship with people who reject all five points of Calvinism. And we love each other because we agree on all the other essentials of the faith. But I do challenge them because I consider it to be doctrinal immaturity. I want them to keep thinking. I want them to keep working it on, uh, you know, working it through. Uh, and I've met with a number of you and talked some of these things through. And I'd be happy to meet with any that want to keep talking. But I know this, that we don't have to resolve this in order to go out and share the gospel. We don't have to resolve this in order to go and be involved in missions etc. Now concerning faith being a work, it's an interesting thing that he says there. Uh, obviously in other places in the New Testament, those two are diametrically opposed, not by faith, but by, not by works, but by faith. The two are, are almost like antonyms. But I think what Jesus is doing there is he's saying, you're thinking all wrong. Uh, he does the same thing to the rich young ruler. What good deed must I do to get eternal life? He challenges him there on the word good. Why do you talk to me about what is good? No one is good, but God alone. If you want to enter life, obey the commandments. It's an interesting approach, right? He says, since you have such an inflated view of your own goodness, I'll give you the commandments. Which ones? Well, then Jesus gives him a list of six of them, including honor your father and mother and love your neighbors yourself. And he says, I've kept all these since my youth. So he's got a problem with what does goodness mean and what kind of law keeping is required in order to uh, make it to heaven. And Jesus then says to him something very interesting. If you want to be perfect, if you want to be perfect, sell your possessions, give to the poor, you'll have treasure in heaven, then come follow me. It's an interesting thing. Is perfection required for heaven? Absolutely, it is. It's just we can't earn it by the law. So I think there he's working on the word good. He really does. He zeroes in on that word good. Here I think he's working in, in John 6 on the, on the idea of works. What works what must we do? I actually don't look on faith as a work at all. Um, you could talk about your eyes. I look on, on faith like the eyesight of the soul. All right, The eyes work... <laughs> And I'm not talking about the muscles. Is Dr. Carlson here? No, he's not. Good. I can say anything I want. Anyway, um, <laughs> but uh, the eyes do, there's muscles in the eyes. I'm not talking about that. But essentially, the, the, eye, the eyeball just receives what's out there, receives the light that's there, takes it in. And I look on faith being like that. It receives what God intends to give. But if you're blind, you can receive nothing. And so therefore, what God does to save us is he opens up the eyesight of the soul called faith and then commands the eye to see, to receive it in. He commands us then to believe, but he gives us the capacity to receive. Uh, that's, but I don't consider it to be a work. I think faith results in works. James covers that. Faith results in works like calling on the name of the Lord. Faith results in works like, like uh, going to church and reading the Bible and evangelizing and all kinds of works come out of it. But itself, itself is essentially passive. That's the way I would answer it. So I think he's zeroing on, on the word work. Yes, Landon. And it's interesting, the verse he talks about, he says, this is the work of God. Mm -hmm. This is the work of God. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I was reading um, a very, uh, I'm always aware of these issues. I, I'll be thinking about this the rest of my life, and so will many of you, namely the relationship between God's sovereignty and, and human responsibility. There's so much evidence and information here. But I found one in Ezekiel in which um, uh, the Lord says to Ezekiel, stand up on your feet. And the next verse it says, and the spirit came into me and compelled me or made me stand up. It's an interesting couplet of verses. I think it's in chapter three or chapter four. Look at it. Or maybe even chapter two. I don't have my Bible with me right now. But, but um, he gives him a command and then the spirit comes in and enables him to obey the command. It's a powerful thing. 
But uh, at any rate, that's that's my idea of, of you know, this is the work of God that you uh, believe in, the one that he has sent. Now, back to this issue here, okay? This is a problem for those that hold to the uh, idea of a general atonement. Because basically what seems to happen in this third is the sin of unbelief, the sin of unbelief is left out. It doesn't get paid for. It's not included. If it is paid for, then you're up here, aren't you? If you say, but it is paid for then you say, then why are they in hell? If it's paid for, then why does anybody suffer and go to hell? That's a problem. So this is a, this is a triad of three options that Owen gives us. That's why it was worth reading. Um, because you look at that and you say, hmm, you know, which of those three lines up with the scripture? And it seems to me, in my opinion, the middle one does. Um, turn the page, page seven, page eight. Okay, better t- terminology, we talked about that. Now there are passages that are used to support the non-reformed view. I just want to begin on these and we'll give it a more f- thorough look at, God willing, next week. Um, but there are many passages that cause people to stumble on this issue and they say, well, this doesn't make any sense. I mean, John 3.16 says, for God so loved the world, doesn't it? He loved the world. That he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And John 6.51, that very same chapter, John 6, Jesus says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. And John, uh, sorry, 2 Corinthians 5.19, it says that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he, committed, he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. And then this one is probably one of the strongest that you're ever going to find. <clears throat> 1 John 2, 2, it says that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. You say, well, mm, you know, you look at that verse and doesn't that kind of settle it? I mean, aren't we Bible believers here? And doesn't it say there that Jesus's blood is the propitiation for the sins of the whole world? The problem is the word propitiation is extremely strong. Basically, it means the one who has effectively removed the wrath of God completely. That's what propitiation means. And friends, if you take the word world there to mean every single solitary person on the face of the earth that ever lived in every generation, then hell is empty, friends, because that's the power of the word propitiation. It means that the wrath of God has been atoned for, appeased. It's a very, very strong word. And therefore, I, I tend to work on the word world and say, okay, what's going on with the word world? What does John mean when he writes the word world? Uh, and by the way, John uses the word world in interesting ways because in a few verses later, he says, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So clearly the word world means different things to John at different times. So it, it's not so easy to say, well, there it says the world, that settles it. It's not that easy because John 3.16 says, God so loved the world, but then 1 John 2.15 tells us we must not love the world. And if we do, the love of the Father is not in us. And you say, whoa, I'm confused. Well, you just have to work at it a little bit and realize that words sometimes take different meanings in different contexts, especially an important word like the word world. Okay, but these are just different verses that are used to support the non-reformed view. Then uh, 1 Timothy 2.6, it says that Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all men, the testimony given in its proper time. Again, the word ransom here has a strong prefix, the word anti, which means in the place of. It's a substitutionary sense. The price was paid and like the last example, tends toward universalism, if not understood uh, correctly. In other words, that basically Jesus paid his blood instead of or in the place of these folks. That's what the word anti means, in the place of or instead of. And then Hebrews 2.9, it says, but we see Jesus who is made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by the grace of God he might taste death 
for everyone. So these are passages which seem to teach uh, that Jesus, in some sense, died for the whole world, the sins of the whole world. Uh, Then secondly, there are passages which appear to speak of Christ dying for people who in the end are not saved. So in some sense, he died for them, but they ended up in hell. Romans 14.15, it seems that that it teaches that. Romans 14.15 says, if your brother is distressed because of what you eat, you're no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating destroy your brother for whom Christ died. So there's the word destroy coupled with the phrase for whom Christ died. Troubling, you see. Jesus died for them, but then the brother ends up getting destroyed by what you eat. Okay, 1 Corinthians 8, 10 and 11 says, similar idea, if anyone with a weak conscience sees you who have this knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't he be emboldened to eat what has been sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. Again, the same idea, a phrase for whom Christ died coupled with this idea of destroyed. 2 Peter 2, 1 It says that there are also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. So here Jesus bought them, it seems, and yet they end up destroyed. They bring destruction on themselves. In what sense then did he buy them? In Hebrews 10.29, it says, How much more severely do you think a man deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot who is treated as an unholy thing, the blood of the covenant that sanctified him and who has insulted the spirit of grace. So again, this terrible warning uh, directed towards somebody who it seems has trampled the blood uh, that sanctified him. So those are two categories of verses that people who, who disagree with definite atonement are going to bring up. Uh, verses that seem to say that Jesus died for the whole world. And then second category is uh, verses that seem to imply that Jesus died for some that end up getting lost. Okay? And we're out of time. Uh, so what I'd like to do is next time talk about some of these verses, try to understand them, and then set this whole uh, discussion in its proper context. Bottom line is this. We are commanded to evangelize to the ends of the earth. We do not know who the elect are uh, beforehand. We don't know, uh, certainly, and I know this, I can say this, I don't know anybody that's alive today that for certain is reprobate or not elect. That information is not given to me. I'll never have it. I keep hoping and hoping for people. You know what I'm saying? I keep hoping and hoping for people who have not yet repented. We never give up because God has the power just like the thief on the cross or like Saul of Tarsus to save in amazing ways. So we never give up. We keep evangelizing. We keep preaching the gospel. And that's what we're commanded to do. Ultimately, though, my trust is in a sovereign God who achieves and accomplishes everything he intends to achieve and accomplish. We'll talk more about that next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the time we've had tonight to study a very deep and uh, difficult issue. We know, Lord, that no matter, uh, Lord, what uh, our understanding is of this, ultimately we are saved through simply embracing the the work of Christ on the cross, believing that he died, he shed his blood, and that he was raised from the dead on the third day. And, Lord, we trust in that. And yet our minds are hungry to know you better. We want to understand your word. We don't want to be slack in our efforts to understand the word. And so, Father, I pray that you would teach us these verses, help us to know what each of them mean. Uh, I pray that we would never get into a position where we have taken a a view on an issue like this and we love certain verses and don't love other verses as a result. I pray that rather we would embrace the truth found in all of these verses. And if in the end our own system, our own understanding has to suffer from it, we say, I just don't know how to put these together, but I love both of these verses. Uh, Lord, I pray that we'd end up there. But Lord, I pray that we wouldn't stop but that we keep praying and seeking knowledge and praying and seeking your truth 
uh, not just from your word and from the spirit, but also from teachers and from those that have written books so that we can understand your word better. Lord, we thank you for this time tonight and for the privilege of studying your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.